0: you would, we're going to take our Bibles tonight and turn open to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17 tonight, verses 17 through 24. 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. Let's pray before we read it. Father, we do not believe this to be a dead letter. We believe it to be alive. So we pray that it would truly be living in its reading, in its preaching this evening, that you would minister to us. And that we would be encouraged in our faith as a result of hearing him. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. First Kings chapter 17 verses 17 through 24. This is the holy and errant word of God. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You've come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, "O Lord, my God, let this child's life come unto him again." And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. I want to give you five points tonight. Let just give them to you at the very beginning of the sermon. First, life is filled with joys and sorrows. Second, death is a true enemy. Third, loss does not equate to discipline or punishment for sin. Fourth, Grief is a real thing and is to be experienced and not glossed over. And then fifth, the Lord is always near his people. We'll go through those this evening. I'll repeat them as we go through. May feel a little disconnected, but you'll see how it's all connected as we go through this passage, I hope. First, life is filled with joys and sorrows. We saw last week that there was this widow that lived in Zarephath, and she had a son. And you'll remember that she only had a little bit of flour, and she only had a little bit of oil, and she only had enough to make one last cake for her and her son, and then she believed that they were going to die from starvation you remember that there was a famine and there was a drought across the land. And there was famine and drought across the land because Israel was being disciplined by God. And His discipline of Israel spread to even the lands of the nations around them. And so you have this woman that has very little. She is facing famine. She's facing starvation with her son. But then God, through the prophet in the midst of this suffering and this loss, He provides for her. And He provides for her abundantly. He provides through the prophet Elijah, and now this widow and now her son are living a very happy, they're living a very full life. There is food to eat and the joys that come with being fully satisfied in life and having these good things of life on every side. And maybe during such times, there's the temptation to think that all is good now. There's nothing left to concern or harm us. That is surely a temptation for most of us in this room, I would say. Uh, we live the good life, a much better life if we were to compare ourselves to people throughout history and Throughout time, we know comforts, we know freedoms that no people, but the most elite and privileged have enjoyed in the history of the world. We never worry about what food we're going to eat next month. None of you, not me in this room, worry about that. We surely don't worry about the food that we're going to eat tomorrow. None of us are leaving tonight worried about whether we will have a warm place to lay our head. None of us are worried that someone will come and barge into our house and carry off our family tonight. It's not a very realistic concern for us. We are pretty safe. We're more than comfortable. In part, that is why something like COVID shakes our society so much. It disturbs comfort. But here we have to be clear. We're east of Eden. That's how theologians have talked about it over the centuries. We're east of Eden. and as when Adam and Eve, when they were commanded by God to leave the garden of Eden, they were to head east. And when they headed east outside of the garden, they now were going to be living in a world of suffering and fallenness. And there's loss in that world. It's a world of sorrows. And we cannot and we will not be able to inoculate ourselves from every loss and every death. The widow of son, the son she so cared for that she was trying to safeguard that flower and that oil for her, becomes sick. And the sickness is so severe that Elijah doesn't even have time to show up and to save the day. It is so quick and so severe that he loses his breath and he dies. And all of a sudden, this world of comfort and and ease and, and joy is all of a sudden filled with the deepest of sufferings. She's lost what she values the most, her son. Sorrow upon sorrow has followed joy. This is a life that is filled with joys and sorrows. Our second point, death is an enemy. The great sorrow that she experiences is death. Death has not passed over her house. It has not skipped by. It has very much come to bear upon her house, and death is an enemy. It's a true enemy. You don't have to explain this to this widow of Zarephath. She knows it by experience. Any of you that have been touched with death, you know that it is a true enemy. We live in a world that is obsessed with preventing death right now. And in some ways, that encourages me. We have lived in a society that has felt very safe. We have done everything we can to make sure that death is exited off the stage, stage right, and we don't have to think about it very much or very often like previous generations. But In another regard, I'm afraid some think that because we've seen incredible medical achievements that we can conquer death. If given enough time and enough energy and enough coordination, we can rise above all our enemies, but that isn't possible. We live in a fallen world, and so loss comes. The best of us experience it. David experienced it. Peter experienced it. Joseph experienced it. And everyone will face the loss of death. Joseph did. David did. Peter did. I will. You will. It doesn't mean we are to try to push death back. Death is an enemy. It doesn't mean we are to be cavalier with our lives or the lives of others. It doesn't mean that we don't take wise measures. No, not at all. As Christians, we're concerned with life from womb to tomb. It wouldn't have been the great medical advancements that we've seen if it wasn't for Christians and our value of life and our love of neighbor and our understanding that we are created in the image of God. But it does mean that we should expect to see loss and death. This world will never be loss of death until the return of Christ. I do not believe science will triumph over all if that was possible god would have sent a scientific formula into the world but he didn't he sent his son into the world and his son conquers death and so we'll suffer we'll suffer in this fallen world loss and pain and injury and sickness and death And at times, it seems so silly to say such a thing. Everybody knows that. You know that when you're living during World War II. But at other times, it feels like we have to say it and remind ourselves. We live in a fallen world. There's going to be loss. There's going to be death. And death is a real enemy. A real enemy. Like this widow, when you've been touched by it, you understand what an enemy it is. But for the Christian, it's not the ultimate enemy. Not any longer, because Christ triumphed over it. As Christians, we are to remind ourselves of this, even if I am to die or my loved one in Christ dies, they simply walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It is loss, but it's not ultimate loss, it's a shadow of death. Death in all its power has lost its hold on us, so we don't fear death as the world does. It no longer has sting for the Christian. Again, that doesn't mean that we are to be cavalier. It surely doesn't mean that we are to be uncaring, but it does mean that we have to look at death as a Christian through the lens of the resurrection. I've told this story before, but I, oh, it is the most perfect of illustrations. It, Goes through my head every time I'm getting ready for a funeral or I'm thinking about Christian death. It is that story of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the, the senior pastor of 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. And when his first wife had died, and he has his three young kids in the car and they are coming back from the funeral. He, he's trying to think how to, how to comfort his kids in the car as they're coming back from their now dead mom's funeral. They've been touched by death. Death is an enemy. And as they're driving along, there is a, a truck that passes them by, one of those... Large trailer trucks. And as that trailer truck passes them by, the the shadow of that trailer truck comes over the car. And Barnhouse has the thought. He says to his kids sitting in the back seat, is it better to be hit by the truck, to be run over by the truck or by the shadow of the truck? One of his kids from the back seat exclaimed, Daddy, the shadow of the truck, that can't do any injury to us. He said, ah, Jesus was run over by the truck of death. By the truck of death. So you might only have to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Mama's just walked through the valley of the shadow of death. conquered. Death is an enemy, but it's conquered. It's a conquered enemy of the Christian. Third, loss does not equate to discipline or punishment for sin. The widow, she loses her son to death. She has been touched by the sorrow of sorrows. And when Elijah shows up, she, she lashes out at him. And she says to him, What have you against me, O man of God? And one can imagine her putting the emphasis upon, O man of God. God had showered His favor upon her. But now she is clear. It is clear in her mind God is now punishing her. Where she was just moments before celebrating this God who had given her provision and abundance, and she was enjoying all the things of life. Now, through the prophet, as she rails against Him, she is railing against this God. and She jumps to the conclusion That this loss of her son is meant to bring back remembrance of her sins committed. Maybe it's, we don't know, maybe it's that she had worshipped Baal. And that's that sin that is being recalled, she believes, by God in her losing her son. But she believes it's punishment. But she's drawn the wrong conclusion. Now, loss can be disciplining, can be the disciplining hand of the Lord. Loss can even be the punishing hand of the Lord. One is possible for the Christian, the other is not. The Lord disciplines His children, but He never punishes them. There is a a vast difference between the two. Discipline is meant to lead to greater life and abundance. It gives, even though it can be incredibly painful and severe in the moment. Punishment is tied to retribution. It's a payment of the penalty for the sin that's been committed. And Christians cannot, and Christians do not, suffer punishment. That's an impossibility. Because the punishment was for our sins was born upon the cross. And it would make a mockery of the cross if God punished us for our sins. We may experience, no doubt, the fruit of our sins. There may be repercussions from our sins. There are always consequences from our sins. But punishment is not in view. Discipline may be in view. Remember, this drought and this famine that this widow and her son are suffering from is because God is disciplining the nation of Israel. He is seeking to lead them to repentance and and to faith. It is an act of discipline on His part. It's an act of love. So discipline may be the cause for loss. I think when we suffer, when we experience loss, that always has to be the first thing that we do as Christians. We have to examine ourselves and say, is the Lord disciplining me? Is there sin that is unrepentant in me? Is he refining me? But notice that I say maybe, where it is possible. Maybe. It's possible. But not always. The loss we suffer in our lives is not always caused by the disciplining hand of the Lord. It, it can and often is the result of living in a fallen world. And that's what's occurring here. This widow's experiencing this as she lives in a fallen world because she lives east of Eden. And this is a world in which you suffer loss and you suffer pain and even death. Why did God ordain this moment of suffering for her? We don't know. But it's not always and often is not a one-to-one correspondence with our sins or our failures. It's simply the result of living in a fallen world. So dear Christians, stop heaping that guilt and that weight upon your shoulders with every suffering and every loss. Why does this happen to this widow after God goes out of his way to bless her? I don't know. Elijah doesn't know. We often don't know. In fact, that's often my answer to people in the midst of suffering. And it's the best answer. I don't know. I don't know why this is happening. That should be your answer to most people that are suffering. I don't know. We always want to search our life for unrepentant sin. We always want to pray, Lord, teach me whatever lesson I am to learn. That's good searching. That's good praying. But we don't always know why this was ordained or allowed. This widow is wrong to come to this quick judgment. It isn't accurate. And so forth. grief is a real thing, and it's to be experienced, not glossed over. Grief is a real thing. It's to be experienced and not glossed over. I love, I absolutely love that Elijah does not rebuke her. He doesn't rebuke her for her wrong conclusion. He doesn't rebuke her for lashing out at Him. He doesn't rebuke her for even lashing out at God. This fiery prophet is pastoral in the moment. He recognizes grief. He just simply asks for her boy, give me your son. He knows her to be a grieving mother. Elijah doesn't truly know, as we do, that her son will be brought back to life. He just knows that She is experiencing grief, and so He doesn't correct her. There's a time and a place for that. It's good to know the time. It's good to know the place. She is rightfully grieving. And in a world of sorrows and loss, there should be grieving. And it doesn't always look put together when you're grieving. It doesn't always appear reasonable when you're grieving. It's not always holy when you're grieving. I want to offer one thing I love about URC and a little caution as I see it in our midst. I love about our church that we have a very high view of God. I love that. We preached on that this morning. I, I couldn't pastor a church that doesn't have a high view of God. I love that you delight in that and that you know that. You recognize and you celebrate God's sovereignty. You see His hand in all things. We believe that. I also love That this is a church in which we believe This sovereign God is a God of purpose and He's a God of love to His people, that He's good. You know that He's not only sovereign and all-powerful, but that He exercises that sovereign power for your good. God is good. Truly, there's not two things that could more comfort you in the midst of loss and suffering than knowing that God is sovereign, He's all-powerful, He's working all things, and He's good. That will sustain you through the highest of waters. But here's my caution. We can... Too often, in the midst of our sorrows and loss, I think, at times, move too quickly through grief, and feel like we need to move too quickly through grief because we believe He's sovereign and He's good. The suffering's real. The loss is real. We're to grieve because death is a true enemy. It's been Quoted throughout this weekend on social media, uh, my kids and I watched it the other night. WandaVision, division, that episode. "Great line. Great line." He says, "What? What is grieving? But love persevering? And that's right. Grief is real because love was real. And that love doesn't just all of a sudden end with loss or with death. And so there's grief. Now we don't grieve like the world grieves because we believe in a sovereign, good God. We lament. We grieve, but we make our cries to God. We look up in the midst of being down. And Elijah does that in our text. No doubt he is also grieving. He doesn't sit down in a corner despairing, but rather what he does is he takes his cries to God. He says, Oh, Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He is racked with grief. Maybe it's his own grief because he has come to know this boy that he's living with. Or maybe he's just racked with the grief of this widow that he's staying with. But when he is racked with this grief, what he does is he turns that into lament to God. And he cries out to God. Or to mourn with those who mourn. Simply try to move them from it immediately. Job's friends were not very good friends. We rob people and we rob ourselves of knowing that God is not only with us in our joys, but in our sorrows when we try to skip over grief. There's great faith in lament. Because we know that in our sorrows He is with us and so we cry to Him. He's always near us. He's near us in our joys. And maybe we could say in a very real sense He's especially with us in the midst of our sorrows. You don't have to too quickly move from sorrow to joy to glorify God. That leads to our final point. The Lord is always near His people. I want to look at the Lord's nearness to this widow and to Elijah and hearing the prayer of this prophet and bringing back her son, but there's a nearness that even... We see in the text before that, it's actually a nearness that I think begets the prayer, that causes the prayers. That's the nearness of God exemplified by this widow's continued faithfulness. Think about the scene, she is racked with grief and so she responds like many of us would in a kind of anger and a kind of outburst and accusation. And yet, even in the midst of that, she still responds and demonstrates faith. She still believes that God is God. She still believes that Elijah is a prophet of this God. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in the great chapter on faith, the hall of fame of faith, is surely referring to this widow of Zarephath when he says this, What more shall I say, for time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection." She's included in that list. She had faith. We see this as she speaks to Elijah, O man of God. She believes that this judgment has come upon her from God. She still believes in this God. Don't dismiss that too easily. Think about this woman. She is a widow. She has lost her husband. She has now lost her son. She has faced famine. She believes that there is judgment that is upon her. She has lost the things she treasures the absolute most in life. And yet she still has faith. She still believes God is God. How do we explain that? Someone that suffers that much and loses that much, how can they still believe that God is God? It's because the Lord was near her. Her faith in God remained because the God of her faith remained with her. He doesn't leave her. He doesn't forsake her. He is with His people always, even to the end of the age. Her faith was kept because she was kept, even in the midst of all this laws. Now Let us look at the nearness of God in raising her son. Elijah, as we said, does not rebuke her. He understands there, again, is a pastoral quality about this fiery prophet. He asks for her son, and the widow gives the body to Elijah, and Elijah then carries this Cold, dead body up the stairs up to what was his room, the place that he stayed in in this house and he went to his bed and he laid this lifeless small body upon the bed. And then as he lays it upon the bed, he stretches himself out upon that boy's dead body three times. got nothing for you. Don't know why. Uh, Seems like we could come up with something cute about the Trinity, but it would be wrong. Uh, I don't know why. Three times. Uh, Does it speak of his pleading with God in prayer and how strong it was? Maybe. I, I don't know. But three times. What I do know is that he cries out to the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who knitted us together in our mother's womb, God who is our creator, God who is our sustainer, and he cries out to him, O oh Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And we're told the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. And he revived the Lord's nearest people. When her son is given back to her, the widow exclaims, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. What word is she referring to? I think she is referring back to verses 15 and 16, where through the prophet Elijah, the promise came to her that God was going to provide for her and her son, that is, he was going to keep her and her son. That was the promise. It's like that father of the young girl in the Gospels who cried out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. This mother could have cried out, I believe you helped me in my unbelief. She knows that the words of the prophet are true because the words of the God behind the prophet are true. His promises are true. And He showed it to her yet again. He is near His people. And you can bank upon His promises. It's often, especially in times of sorrow and loss, like this moment when Elijah's up in that upper room and that widow is down in the lower room when everything is stripped bare and you are left with nothing. You're just left with God. And the only thing that you have in such circumstances is prayer. Elijah, he's a great prophet. But it's not his greatness that brings back that boy. It's not the fact that he had some magical ability laying on him three times. It was because of the greatness of his God. It's God who is near his people. I mentioned last week that I don't think we're ready to suffer as a church. Speaking about the American church. Speak of myself as much as any. The thing that leads me to that conclusion quicker than any other is that we are not a people of prayer. When everything else is stripped away and sorrows and loss seem to be our only companions, when we're left alone in an empty room with our suffering, will we actually know how to pray? Elijah was a man who knew the Lord was always near his people and he surely learned that in the school of prayer. It wasn't as if he turned to prayer in that moment just because the circumstances dictated. He was a man that had been prepared to pray in that moment because he was a man who lived a life of prayer. He knew the Lord to be near His people. And He knew that nearness in prayer. The more we understand that, the more we will speak to Him in prayer. And the more comfort we will have in the midst of sorrow and loss. And it could even mean the more prayers that we see answered. Life is filled with joys, it's filled with sorrows, but the Lord is always near His people. Regardless of whether we are in times of joy or sorrow, He said, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. He said, I will not leave you, nor will I forsake you. Those are promises. He's near His people. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that You are not just a God in times of blessing, but You are a God in times of sorrow. You are not just a God that provides our needs in the slight enemies that we face in this life, but you are a God who supplied our need by conquering that great enemy, death itself. We always remember that you are a God who draws near to your people. May we find that we are drawing near to you time and again throughout our days that we could say that we resonate to some degree with the Apostle Paul when he says, pray without ceasing, and we could say yes. Marks my life to some degree, but truly, you are with us, and it is good to be with you. What a delight it is to be your people—people people of a sovereign, good God, who cares and blesses his people in times of joy and times of sorrow. What else would we do? To whom else would we turn? We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.